Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Thou, O Lord, wilt keep them, thou wilt preserve him from this generation forever. In a nutshell, um, and certainly the the rhetoric of of, uh, being refined speaks to the reliability of God's word. It sustains us. Um, or is the agency for our sustenance, and uh, uh, it is reliable. And so as Josh comes and preaches uh, the word, as he exhorts us from the word, I would encourage you to know that the word that's being uh, brought to you uh, is reliable and sufficient for every area of your life and mine. Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you all again for a second week, and uh, we are returning to the Gospel of Luke. You may have seen that in your uh, handout in the insert. So the passage this morning is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, so I invite you to turn to that passage with me. And please stand also for the reading of the Word of God. Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say? That I am. Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look to this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your words, which are pure and true, and also profitable for our instruction. We thank you that we are given from you a word that is not from men, but comes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and teaches us. We thank you for the words of Christ here in the Gospel of Luke, and we ask that you would uh, give us the ability to spiritually understand the words that are here on this page, that they would not just be words that we uh, grasp intellectually, but that words that penetrate our hearts and that bring forth fruit in our lives. 
We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to bring some messages to you from the Gospel of Luke, and in choosing which ones to bring, I wanted to bring those which I believe to be particularly important and central for us. And this is a very important passage in the Gospel of Luke, not only in terms of the content, speaking about very core content for our faith, but also it's important in the structure of the Gospels themselves. In fact, this confession of Peter is among the most pivotal parts of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because it is at this point that after Peter's confession, Jesus begins to predict his death and his resurrection uh, noted and recorded three times in these Gospels for us. Now, if you were to think of the Gospels uh, and the structure of the Gospels as mountain peaks... Think of the death and resurrection of Christ as Mount Everest. It's the very highest point in the Gospels, that which the Gospels culminate in as the central event, the central two events in the Gospels. Now, if the death and resurrection of Christ is Mount Everest, then you need to think of this passage as one of the tallest Himalayan peaks amongst the parts of the Gospels. It is that important, that central, in terms of understanding the Gospels. It was actually at this point, following Peter's confession, as I said, that Jesus began to predict his death and his resurrection. He did not as openly speak about these things until Peter made this confession. And so we see then that this confession of faith was a very important moment because it was at this point that the disciples, even if imperfectly, they did yet truly grasp who Jesus was and what he had come to do. To some degree, we'll find that they, Peter in particular, fails in his full grasp of Jesus' mission when he rebukes Jesus, as we will find out. But this passage concerning this confession and the question that Jesus puts to Peter, and by extension the other disciples, is a very important question. When he asks them, Who do you say that I am? That question is pressed upon each of us as readers of the Gospels as well. It is not sufficient for any of us to simply hear opinions about Jesus, to talk about him a lot, to be around Christians who talk about Jesus. That doesn't make any of us a Christian. That doesn't make any of us a true follower of Christ. It doesn't save any of us to simply be around the message of Christ, to simply be in proximity to the preaching of the word. And it's not sufficient for us to just take any old opinion about Jesus and believe it on the grounds that it's somebody's opinion. This question that Jesus asks is of eternal importance for the destiny of your soul and for the direction of your life in this world. It will determine everything, how you answer this question. If you answer this question the way the crowds do, then your life will go one direction. But if you answer this question truly, as Jesus reveals himself to be, then you will be saved when you believe this in your heart and say it with your mouth. And so I've titled this message, A Saving Confession a costly discipleship. 
You'll see that on the the notes if you have those. And the reason I I mentioned both, a saving confession and a costly discipleship, is because following Peter's confession, not only does Jesus reveal his, his suffering to come and his resurrection, but he says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to follow in my footsteps. It's a very hard word that Jesus gives following this confession. And what we see is brought together here is that a confession of Christ inevitably in the scriptures is always accompanied with a life of discipleship, a commitment to Christ. Those that truly confess and believe Christ must follow him. These cannot be separated when it comes to the confession of faith. And so as we go into this passage, we're going to look at these different things. We're going to see the confession that Peter makes. We're going to see the predictions of Christ concerning his death and resurrection. And then we're going to see the call to discipleship. And I would argue that those three things are among the most core, central truths of the Christian faith and that which we must commit ourselves to if we would follow Christ. So we begin with Peter's confession, and I will read verses 18 through 20 again. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. So this confession that Peter makes, we we know from Matthew and Mark that this took place in the region of Caesarea Philippi, far in the north of the region of Galilee. Uh, And at this point, Jesus presents these two questions to his disciples. It's noteworthy always to observe how Jesus speaks in the Gospels. There's much to learn. Even just watching how Jesus asks questions is a lesson in wisdom itself. Our Lord always spoke truth, he spoke righteousness, he spoke the word that was fitting at the moment. And I think, if I was to hypothesize, why is it that Jesus asks questions rather than just saying who he is? He could have done that, right? He could have sat his disciples down and he could have said, now listen, my friends, I want to tell you who I am. I am the Christ of God. He could have done that. But he didn't do that. He, he asked them two questions. Perhaps the reason that he asked these two questions is that rather than having the disciples sit there passively and just listening to his teaching, that he was forcing them to answer for themselves what they believed. It's important to do this when we confront people with the claims of Christ, when we, we speak to one another about Christ, that we don't just teach to them. Of course, the preaching of the word is meant to be a teaching, meant to be a speaking forth and heralding of the truth. But there comes a time where we have to ask each of us, what do you believe about Christ? What do you say about him? And as I said, we can be in proximity of the word. We can be in proximity of the things of Christ and never come to truly receive these things for ourselves. There are people that can go to church for decades and never really answer this question for themselves and commit themselves to the answer of this question. And so, again, it is not sufficient to have some outward association with Jesus Christ. We must confess with the mouth, believe in the heart, and commit ourselves to following him. 
And many were associated with Jesus during his earthly ministry. You remember the crowds that would follow him around? And he asked that question in this way. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? And if you study the crowds in the Gospels, you, you find that they, many times, were looking for things that were not very substantial. They did not follow Christ in order to be saved from their sins in so many cases. Sometimes they just followed Christ for bread. They just wanted the bread. He rebukes them for that. He says, you seek the loaves, but you do not seek me for eternal life. Many people perhaps followed him for the benefits that would come from his healing ministry. And in many cases, the healings that we do see recorded, I believe, were accompanied with saving faith. There are other occasions where, like the Samaritans, the uh, that were the lepers, I should say, that are healed, they nine do not return to thank him. Sometimes there was not always a, a unity of faith with the ministry of Christ in the reception of it. And our Lord Jesus tells us that in the response to the message that he preached, there would be some that received it with joy, but then it did not take root in the heart and it did not bear fruit. For example, in Luke 18, in the parable of the sower, he he says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and, and bring no fruit to maturity. Now that's possible for any one of us within the walls of this building as we gather for worship. We can hear the word of God preached for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but eventually it either it will take root and it will bear fruit in our lives or the cares of this life, the, the pleasures of this world will actually be that which directs us and that which is our ultimate priority. And so our Lord Jesus, so many times in the Gospels, he says, take heed how you hear. Consider whether you receive the word with faith or not. And my heartfelt desire for each of us as we hear the word today is that we would be those who have made a saving confession of Jesus Christ and that our lives evidence a commitment to that saving confession how tragic it would be that if, like the crowds, we just spent time around Jesus, but we never followed him. We never, we never put our trust in him. And that is why Jesus brings these questions to the disciples and to us by extension. So I want to take some time now to think about both questions. The, the first question that Jesus asks, and then the second question directed to the disciples. The first is this, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, in asking that question, we need to think about what would be the implications of if you base your beliefs on Christ in terms of what the crowd say about him. Just take any modern day crowd that you can think about, the whims and waves of popular opinion that are uh, all about us. Back in Jesus' day, just like today, there are different opinions about who Jesus is. There, were, there was word on the street at this time. Some people said, ah, he's just John the Baptist, the, the man that got beheaded, he's back, he got resurrected from the dead, it's just him. And of course, Herod wondered if that was the case. Herod had this guilty conscience that bothered him. After he beheaded John the Baptist, he knew that uh, John the Baptist was a righteous man, and so he wondered, has John the Baptist come back to haunt me and to preach to me? Others said, well, this is Elijah, who is to come? Because Elijah had been prophesied as one of the uh, the the, the 
things that would happen before the day of the Lord in Malachi. Others said, well, he's just a prophet, some prophet, or maybe he's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. There was these different theories going on. But notice that in all of the discussion amongst the crowds, they actually all missed it. None of, in terms of the report that the disciples gave, none of the answers were right. Now, Jesus is indeed a prophet, but he's not a prophet of old. He is the prophet. The crowds were missing that he was the Messiah, the Christ of God, the one that the Old Testament had prophesied to come and to bring to pass all the promises of God. And they were missing it. Now, this serves as a warning to each of us that we do not base our beliefs about Christ on public opinion, on popular opinion about him. We know that there are thousands of false versions of Jesus out there, thousands of counterfeits to the real Christ, and there's no salvation found in a false Jesus. You don't want to get your perspective on Christ from the once-a-year issued Time magazine or Life magazine about Christ. You may, you may have seen this. Uh, it seems like every year these magazines, they issue this article, perhaps around the time of Christmas or around the time of Easter, and and they have this article about Jesus, and, and they, they bring out some scholar of early Christianity, and almost always they're a non-believing scholar. And, and, and guess what? You've, all, you've heard this before. They tell you, everything you know about Jesus is wrong. That's always the, the line that you seem to get out of these articles. And, and we're supposed to gasp and be shocked that... All the Christians from all the thousands of years have gotten it wrong until the guy that went up on the mountain came down and he wrote his article for us and now we know, now we know who Jesus is and he's not the Jesus that we thought he was. We've seen that so many times. And that's an example of basing our beliefs about Christ on whatever is the current popular opinion about him. Now I want to tell you there's a much better way to know who Christ is than to read Time magazine. It is to base your beliefs about Christ on his own words about himself. Who does he reveal himself to be in the Gospels? What do the Gospels who do the Gospels present him to be? It is in knowing the true Christ and in believing in him that we have eternal life. That is what John 17 verse 3 says. When Jesus says this in John 17, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, brothers and sisters, it is so important, it is so urgent that we answer this question rightly. Who is Jesus? How do we know who he is? And it can only be on the basis of the testimony of the word of God. And so, after surveying public opinion to get the disciples to regurgitate all the different things that they had been hearing about Christ, he says, okay, now I want to know, who do you say? That I am. That's what we see in verse 20. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Now it was at this point that Peter imperfectly but truly grasped who Jesus was. Peter recognized this isn't John the Baptist, this isn't just another prophet. This man standing before me is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that God had promised and now has come to save his people. 
Now, when we think about this very brief confession as it's reported in Luke, we see it's simply stated here, the Christ of God. That, that begs the question, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ of God? Now, of course, we, we should know that Jesus and Christ is not a first name and last name. I think we're aware that that's not what these, these terms mean. Christ is a title, and it's descriptive of his office. And, of course, the word Christ simply means anointed one. It is an equivalent word to the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah in the Hebrew. It means the anointed one. And that begs the next question. What does anointing mean? Why is anointing important? We recall these events in the Old Testament where certain people would be set apart and there would be this oil put upon them. Uh, We think of uh, Aaron. We think of uh, David or, or Saul. These different people that had anointing oil put upon them to set them apart for an office. And that's really what you need to think about when it comes to the term anointing or anointed one. It has to do with somebody that is set apart for a divinely ordained task. Each of them you might call in the Old Testament as ministers. They served God's people on behalf of God, whether they were a a priest like Aaron, whether they were a king like David, or whether they were a prophet that spoke the word of God. Each of these different offices were all anointed offices. Even if they didn't have the literal oil, they did have the spirit anointing that came with it that equipped them to do what God had called them to do. But when it comes to say the Christ of God the anointed of God, we are talking here not about just a king, a priest, a prophet. We are talking about the one to which all the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed and culminated in him. And it has helped me in trying to grasp this term, the Christ of God, to think about those Old Testament offices, the offices of prophet and priest and king. And you may have seen in our our standards, uh, the Westminster Standards, that When it talks about who Christ is, it talks a lot about his offices, his office of a prophet and of a priest and of a king. And and if you take those offices, it really does help you to grasp in a full way who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in fact, I believe that when you you turn to the, the letter to the Hebrews, you find that this is actually how the author begins his letter, is he begins by pointing to all three of these offices and saying, This is who the Son of God is. And I want to read that to you here because I think it helps us in grasping this term, the Christ, the Messiah of God. Listen to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if you look at that, you might think, I don't see the word prophet, priest, or king in that passage. But we do see all three activities evident in the text. We see that in times past there were these prophets, but now, finally, in the last days, God has spoken through his son. He is a prophet. He speaks. 
And then we see that he is king because he is appointed heir of all things. He rules over the world, the universe. And also, it says, having purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a place of authority. He is king. So we see his kingship. And then we see his priestly work here. We see that he purged our sins finally and fully. The work is done. He sat down. Now take all of that together if you want to grasp who is Jesus? What has he done? What does it mean to say that he is the Messiah? Now the disciples did not always understand all of these things. I don't think they grasped the fullness of what it was that Jesus had come to do. And we'll find that in a few minutes here when we look at Peter rebuking Christ. But it's not a surprise that if you're an Old Testament believer, you have, call it all the jigsaw pieces, right? Think of a a thousand piece or maybe a 2,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. I don't build these kinds of puzzles because they're intimidating. But if you have a, a puzzle like that, think of all the prophecies of the Old Testament as these little jigsaw pieces. What helps you when you're building a puzzle like that is to have the box, right? You got to have the box and you see the picture and you think, okay, I, I can start piecing this together. But if you don't have the box, if you don't have it all brought together, it's rather hard to fit all these prophecies together. I can only imagine that without the New Testament, call it the jigsaw puzzle box, it would be hard to see how all these things fit together. And so they did not fully grasp all that this entailed to say, you are the Christ of God, but they would begin to grasp it. But what I want us to see as we think about Peter's confession is this, even if Peter did not fully grasp everything about what Jesus had come to do as the Messiah, This was indeed a confession of truth. He was confessing rightly who Jesus is. Now, thankfully for us, it's not the exhaustiveness of our knowledge about Christ that saves us, is it? It it is simply that we confess him to be who he is. We believe in our heart that he is who he says he is. And that means, of course, that any of us can make a saving confession of Christ. It does not require that you have graduated high school or college and have a a seminary-level grasp of who Christ is to be saved. You simply need to confess him to be who he is. And this is made very clear to us in Romans 10, this, uh, this passage that is so important in understanding salvation by grace through faith. Paul writes, he says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so this is the question I put before you today, brothers and sisters, all that are here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Can you answer with conviction and with confidence that Jesus is the Christ of God, that Jesus is the one who has come to do all of these things for us, to save us, to save you? And without this confession, you will not be saved, the scriptures teach, because there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see the confession. Now we go on to the prediction, the the prophecy that Jesus gives us in verses 21 through 22. Now, as I've studied this passage, I've grappled with why was it that Jesus waited until this moment to tell them about this? And I ask this question because obviously they still don't get it after he tells them. Why did Jesus wait to tell them after the confession? 
Well, if I had to guess at it in terms of reasons, it may be that our Lord wanted the disciples to at least have a sufficient grasp of the fact that he was the Messiah and then to deliver this very hard news to them, which would be very difficult for them to receive. It seems like they did need to have some degree of recognition before they could receive these words. But consider the the pride involved with Peter rebuking Jesus in this situation. It's rather shocking to me. So Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then the Messiah tells him what he's going to do. And then Peter says, that's not what the Messiah came to do. That's pretty amazing to do such a thing. Because Jesus tells them about what was going to take place. But Peter doesn't want to have it. He says, no, the Messiah is going to come to do what I thought he came to do, and it certainly was not to die and rise again from the dead. That was not on the Messiah's agenda from Peter's standpoint. But it was on the Messiah's agenda. It was what the Father had ordained for him. And so Jesus, in verses 21 through 22, gives us this summary, this core summary of the gospel, which Paul later says, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the core truths concerning the gospel of Christ. So let's read verse 21 and 22. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This came as a terrible shock to the disciples at this point. They, I think, had probably collected these messianic prophecies in their minds, and for them, there was a very different picture of what the Messiah's coming was going to be. Things had been exciting thus far in the ministry work of Christ. They had seen all different kinds of amazing things happening. The kingdom of God coming with power. They had seen demons cast out, people healed, crowds being fed. All these amazing things were taking place. And imagine the letdown that the Messiah is going to die. Where does this come in? How is this part of the plan for national deliverance of Israel? And you can imagine, if you were them, what kind of prophecies they might have had in mind. And I just chose one that I think was perhaps a greater controlling factor in their minds than certain other prophecies. I'm thinking of Psalm 2, verses 8 through 9. In Psalm 2, listen to this prophecy of the anointed one, the Messiah, what he would do. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, how can the Messiah dash the nations to pieces if he himself is going to be dashed to pieces? He's going to die. Certainly Simon the Zealot would have been excited about the Messiah having come because now the Davidic king is here. We can cast out these terrible tyrannical Romans. We can restore the kingship and the nation will be cleansed of this unrighteousness and it will be restored. And yes, indeed, Psalm 2 refers to Christ. It refers to his work as king. But there were other dimensions to what the Old Testament had said the Messiah would do. It was not just... He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It was also passages like Isaiah chapter 53. Maybe this passage was not as a controlling factor for the disciples. Isaiah 53, 2 through 4. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so if one was to be studious of the Old Testament, you could have seen things like this. You could have tried to bring it all together, but I do not think that the prophecy of Isaiah 53 was a very tasteful or desirable prophecy to think about when it came to the Messiah. What the disciples did not yet grasp was that before Jesus would wear the crown of the universe as king, he would first have to wear the crown of thorns. Before Jesus would be lifted up above all things and ascended to the right hand of God, he would first be lifted up on a cross, tortured, crucified, and died, and then buried. But what Jesus had come to do, friends, was an absolute necessity. There was no other way to fulfill what the Messiah of God had come to do, but yet it was only through his death and resurrection that this work could be accomplished. And yes, the disciples, they wanted deliverance, they wanted Israel restored, but they did not realize at this point that deliverance came through the atoning sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection, and that deliverance for the people was not just deliverance from the Romans, but deliverance from the bondage of their sins and eternal destruction that faced every single one of them without that sacrifice and that resurrection. And so it is not a surprise to us that even here, the gospel of Christ appears as foolishness. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, he says, the preaching of the cross is is foolishness. uh, The Jews and the Greeks, they don't like it. And Peter didn't like it. Even here, standing before the Messiah of God, he cannot receive these words. Because the gospel itself, though it is the power and the wisdom of God unto salvation, does not appear such to this world. And so the question we must ask as we understand these things from the whole range of the scriptures, and if we have heard the preaching of the gospel, is this. Are the words concerning the death and resurrection of Christ foolishness to you? Do they make no sense to you? Do you reject them? Or do you receive these words as precious words? You will receive them as precious words if you find in them your hope. If you find in these words of Christ the hope of your salvation, the only thing in which you boast in this life, then these words will be precious to you. And so we must see here in the, in the prediction of Christ, his love for his people to do such a thing, to die for sinners and to be risen again for our life. And so following this prediction, we come to the command, the call to discipleship that Jesus issues to his disciples. They had already received one blow when it came to this prediction. That was a hard blow for Peter to say, far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen to you, rebukes Christ. And yet he was setting his mind upon the things of men and the things of the evil one in doing so. But the message is about to get harder. It's about to get harder when he says, not only am I going to die, but if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die as well. Verse 23 and 25. 
Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? It was hard enough for them to contemplate that Jesus was going to die in Jerusalem, but now to contemplate, we have to die with him? This was not the plan that they had contemplated and thought about. The king of the universe, the inheritor of the nations, is going to die and we have to die with him? This, this all sounds like a big failure, does it not? Yes, this is the gospel message, brothers and sisters. It it is strange, it is foreign, it appears foolish, but this is the very way in which your salvation has been accomplished. And it is the very way in which true disciples of Christ respond. Jesus says that to follow him involves two things. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. This is core to the life of Christian discipleship. It's it's hard to get more basic than this. We can think about all different kinds of applications of the scriptures, all different kinds of exhortations about walking and godliness, but I, I can tell you that this is central to our Lord's command to discipleship and call to discipleship. Now, as we think about self denial, what does it mean to deny self? There are hundreds of thousands of potential applications of this command to deny self uh, in the Christian life. And there are opportunities every single day. That's why this version from the Gospel of Luke here says, daily, take up your cross daily and deny self. It is the constant test of discipleship. Will I give up my own interests and desires for the service of Christ, which most often takes the form of giving of ourselves to those around us, giving Uh, up my own interests for the sake of my wife, my children, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my fellow neighbors. It it is us giving up our own interests to follow him. But let's keep in mind that for the disciples, this was not merely a spiritual application. What we were talking about when we talked about when he said, take up the cross. This is not a sanitized image, brothers and sisters, for the disciples. This has not gone through uh, hundreds of years of sanitation. This is, this is not the Jesus bumper sticker kind of cross. What we are talking about is a horrific form of torture and death that Jesus was about to experience. And so when he says, take up the cross and follow me, the disciples had the most horrific images in their minds that they could, could really come up with. There was nothing more horrific than this. And that's why this call was so impactful and it was so demanding of them. And Jesus is saying, you confess me to be the Christ of God. You believe in me. You're going to follow me. This is what the life of discipleship will look like. And so I think it is important for us to consider, is my confession of Jesus Christ followed with this commitment to discipleship? Does my life evidence that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul to Jesus Christ who has died for me? Do I follow him? And this profession of faith will be tested, brothers and sisters. 
One of the most crucial tests for discipleship, Jesus lays out in the next verse, in verse 26. And I I think he includes it here because this was the temptation that they faced, was to be ashamed of the words of Christ. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in, in his Father's and of the holy angels. This is the test of discipleship. Will I be associated with Christ when it brings me into conflict with the world? Remember that the world characteristically hates Jesus' words. Jesus' words condemn the world. Jesus' words reveal the wickedness of the human heart. And yet Jesus' words also reveal the very way of salvation. But for a world that does not want this message and does not want to receive this condemnation concerning their condition, these are condemning words and they reject these words. They, they push against them. They do not want this message of death and resurrection thinking that they need such a thing for themselves. And so the disciples would be tested on this. They would be tested within the hours or within uh, the days that would follow uh, in that last week of Jesus' life. Would they be willing to be associated with Christ? And we know what happened with Peter and the other disciples. It didn't go well. How heartbreaking then it was for Peter when he became ashamed of Jesus. When the test of cross-bearing came after Peter had said, I will die with you, Lord, even if the rest don't. He was ashamed and he said, I don't know that man. When, they were, when he was asked, weren't you also with the Galilean? He, he swore an oath. He invoked a curse upon himself and he said, I do not know that man. And I believe that each of us will find ourselves in similar situations. We will be asked, we will be pressed in this world to say, do you agree with the words of Christ? Do you really agree with that part of the Bible? Is that, is that your commitment? You will be pressed. They will ask you, will you get with the cultural program? Will you get on the train to hell, ultimately, is where this train is going? Will you join us? And this is a test of our discipleship, a test of our commitment. Are we ashamed of the words of Christ? We should not be. If this is our hope, if this is our life, and if he is our Savior, then these will be precious words to us that we will have no fear of saying, yes, I stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will say that the words of Christ have absolute authority in my life. I will not budge from them. I am committed to them and I will speak them. And as Jesus presses this call to discipleship upon his disciples, not only does he test them upon their willingness to be associated with him, but he also gives them a, a wager, if you will. He presses them with verse 25. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Now tell me, as as you listen to this message, what is the value of your soul? Jesus presents this wager to us. He wants us to compare values. He wants us to think about this. What are you willing to wager the loss of your soul for? Would it be worth it to have a million dollars in this life and for your soul to be condemned and lost? Would it be worth it if you had $10 million? 
Well, Jesus doesn't even say a million dollars or ten million dollars. He, he gives us a much bigger wager. He says to gain the whole world. He wants us to think, if you had everything that you've ever thought about wanting in this life, no limits, no boundaries, this entire world is yours. Would it be worth it to lose your soul for that? Well, I think the answer is basically given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes to that very question, because if there's anybody that got to test that question out, it seems that Solomon had the freedom to do so. And Solomon told us what the conclusion of that life was. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. To to wager your soul on the whole world would still not be worth it because you have an eternity ahead for the loss of your soul. Now, the reality is most people set their sights on something far lower than that goal. Most people recognize, I can't have the world. I can't have the whole world. And that is why it is so heartbreaking to me when I have seen people wager their souls and the loss of their souls for something as pitiful and vain and useless as something like drugs. I've seen this before uh, in my ministry over the last few years to see someone give up their profession of faith in Christ and say, I'm going to live for a substance that will give me pleasure for a very brief period of time. And it will not only mean that I, I, I commit my life to idolatry and I forsake Christ, but it's not even going to give me that much pleasure at the end of the day. Destroy my body and destroy my soul in the process. And sometimes it's not something that we think of as negative like drugs. We, we have all these stigmas about a life of addiction, but there's plenty of other idolatries that people commit themselves to. I read earlier in Luke chapter 8, what is it? The cares of this world. The God that some people worship is their job. The idols that some people seek is money, fame, pleasure, contentment, uh, contented, contentment in the things of this life. That's, that's what people set their sights upon, but they, as they do so, they, they are wagering the loss of their souls because they will not turn to Christ. They will not put their hope in him. They will not repent of their sins. And so, brothers and sisters, this text from the Gospel of Luke is very personal to us today. I, I present the question to you many, many times throughout this message. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is your only hope found in the suffering servant who has achieved eternal redemption and risen again? Is your very life and identity wrapped up in these historical events? Now, if you're a baptized Christian, that indeed should be the case. Romans 6 tells us about how our very lives are linked in with these historical events of the death and resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 3, He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so that's what baptism is meant to show forth. It's meant to say, I've become one with Christ. I am united to him by faith. His death is my death, his resurrection is my resurrection, and my life is characterized by this newness of life from here on out. 
And I present that as, so that we can remember even our baptisms that we have received, whether as, as infants and children or whether later in life, what have we committed ourselves to? You've committed yourself to a life of discipleship. You've committed yourself to a life of self-denial, standing for the words of Christ and taking up your cross every single day. And so I press this question upon you, brothers and sisters, the wager that our Lord Jesus gives. Have you, have you dealt with that wager? Have you considered the value of your soul and the consequences of its loss? And have you cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope, the only way of deliverance from this present evil age? And so let's pray in light of this text that our Lord, Lord's words would penetrate our hearts and we would continue to abide in his words as his disciples. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that it is by you giving us a revelation of the Holy Spirit that we can join the confession of Peter and say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, I desire that each of us here in this room would make that confession from sincerity of heart and that we would commit ourselves to the life of discipleship with Christ. We thank you that we are saved, not by our own works, but by the death and resurrection of our Savior, that all of our sins are forgiven through him. And we ask that you would enable us to commit ourselves to the call that Christ has given, that we would be those who evidence a life of faith by the life of self-denial cross-bearing, and standing for Christ. We ask that you would help us now as we receive this word, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.